Okay, so if you guys remember, last week we went over uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Um, there, Peter told believers to be full of confidence and not fear their oppressors because they'll be rewarded and blessed and ultimately vindicated by God for their suffering. In this last paragraph of chapter 3, Peter will show us that Christ traveled the pathway from suffering to glory. And he'll also point out that suffering isn't a sign of divine displeasure, but rather it's the opposite. Now this morning, I've decided that we're just going to cover the last five verses of chapter 3. In those verses, we're going to be going over some important topics, some important and controversial issues, topics that have been that have been debated in the church through several centuries. But actually, the overall theme, I'm going to share with you the overall, this overall theme in this letter. Just as suffering was the pathway to exaltation for Christ, so also suffering is a prelude to glory for believers. Every time we suffer for righteousness sake, if you're going through a time of suffering right now, if you find yourself in the near future in that time of suffering, you should find comfort in the fact that um, it's not for nothing. Why? Because we have a promise from God that if we suffer with Him, we'll one day be glorified with Him. So again, whatever afflictions you're going through, they're temporary. And in all reality, they're nothing compared to the glory that awaits us, that awaits you. So, at the time, if you haven't turned to your Bibles to chapter 3, um, do so. And while you do, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you on this uh, another wonderful Sunday in January, Lord. And we praise you and we glorify you, Lord. And you're so amazing and good to us. Lord, some of us have all already have been dealing with a lot of issues, problems, although it's just been a few weeks here in January. And I just ask that you continue to encourage us, Lord. Give us the strength, Lord, to, to endure, to be patient, to continue to love, and continue to look to you, Lord. And as we get into your word, as we get into this message, Lord, if anyone is going through some trial or if they're suffering, if they're being going through a time of persecution, Lord, I pray that this message will encourage them. I pray that you will show them that there is a plan, there is a purpose, there is a meaning behind all that, Lord. So speak to them powerfully through this message. Fill us with your love and your spirit right now, Lord. Soften our hearts so we can receive your word. And just use me in a powerful way to speak your truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And the word of God says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who were in the past, who in the past were disobedient. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. In this last section of chapter 3, Peter presents, as, Peter presents Christ as the ultimate example of one who suffered for righteousness' sake and reminds, that, reminds us that for him, suffering was the pathway to glory. I want you to notice in verse 18 that Peter gives us six features of Jesus' suffering. I'm going to be mentioning some pretty big theological words here, if you've never heard them before, but I'll explain what they are. They were expiatory, meaning they freed believing sinners from the punishment of their sins. Secondly, they were, um, his sufferings were eternally effectual, meaning he died once for all and settled the sin question. The work of redemption was completed. Thirdly, his sufferings were substitutionary. The righteous dying, the righteous died for the unrighteous. As it is written in Isaiah 53:6, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. They were also reconciling. You see, through his death, we have been brought to God. The sin which caused alienation, was, has been removed. They were violent. His sufferings were violent. How? It was just a horrible execution. And finally, the sufferings of Jesus were climaxed by his resurrection when he was raised from the dead on the third day. The expression here, made alive by the Spirit, means that his resurrection was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I like what Matthew Henry said concerning this. He said, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings. His agonies, thy response. His conflicts, his conflicts thy conquests. His groans, thy songs, his pains, thy knees, his shame, thy glory, his death, thy life, his sufferings, thy salvation. Now, in between the statements or the statement of Jesus' suffering and his vindication, Peter brings up one of the most controversial and intriguing texts in the New Testament. Regarding this verse, Martin Luther said this, 
A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. Now, due, the, due to the complexity in interpreting verse 19, it's often been used to teach unbiblical doctrines such as purgatory and universal salvation. However, among evangelicals and Christian scholars, there are two commonly accepted interpretations. According to the first, Christ went to Hades in spirit between death and his resurrection and proclaimed victory and judgment over evil angels. Now we have evidence in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 that this was a time when early on and during that time it was a time of gross sin for both demons and humans when there was ungodly mingling between the two. So the point of this passage is then it's, it's not that Christ descended into hell but as verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 says, his victory over evil angelic powers. So just as Jesus was vindicated before his opponents, believers will too, if they, like Jesus, remain faithful and righteous to the tasks God has called them to do. And here's the second interpretation. The second interpretation is a description of what happened in the days of Noah. It was, the spirit of, it was the Spirit of Christ who preached through Noah to the unbelieving generation before the flood. They were not dismembered spirits at that time, but living men and women just like us who rejected the warnings of Noah and were destroyed by the flood. Now, in Hades, their spirits in prison, awaiting final judgment. Now, personally, I'm more inclined to believe this second view because it best fits the context and has the least difficulties connecting with it. So let me show you why by examining verses 19 through 20 a little further. Verse 19 says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. The term in which refers back to by the spirit at the end of verse 18, and which I explained earlier meant the Holy Spirit. Here are a couple examples of this. Back in chapter 1, verse 11 of this letter, the spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, is described as speaking through the prophets. Of the Old Testament. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God speaks of His Spirit, that is, again, the Holy Spirit, as nearing the limit of endurance with mankind's corruption. Now, from here, Peter says, He also went and made proclamation. This would imply that Christ who preached, it was, that it was Christ who preached not Noah, or but through, through Noah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness and is the same root word used here as Christ is preaching. 
And then Peter ends by saying to the prisons or to the spirits in prison. These were the people Noah preached to. Living men and women who heard the warning of an impending flood and the promise of salvation in the ark. Those who rejected the message drowned in the flood. So now they're dismembered spirits in prison awaiting final judgment. Verse 19 could therefore be read this way. In which, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in which the Holy Spirit, he, speaking of Christ, went and made proclamation through Noah to the spirits in prison, which is Hades. Now, how do we know that the spirits in prison were living men in Noah's day? The answer is found in verse 20. Here, the spirits in prison are unmistakably identified. So who were they? Those who in the past were disobedient. When when were they disobedient? When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And what was their final outcome? In it, that is, eight people were saved through water. Now, to properly understand this statement and the verse that follows, we must see the spiritual representation of the ark and the flood. Think of the ark as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the floodwaters, the judgment of God, and entering the ark as the only way of salvation. We're told in Genesis 7 that when the flood came, only those who were inside were saved, while all those that were outside perished. So in the same way, Christ is the only way of salvation. If you're in Christ, you're as saved as God himself can make you. However, those outside of Christ could be, could, couldn't be more lost. Furthermore, it's obviously clear that in the story, the water wasn't the means of salvation because it says that all those who were in the water perished. They all drowned. The only place of refuge and safety was inside the ark. It was the ark that went through the water of judgment. It took the full brunt of the storm and through it all, not a drop of water reached those inside the ark. In the same way, Christ bore the fury of God's judgment against our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, surrounded by water in every direction, up, down, sideways, underneath, the ark held its believing occupants and delivered them to safety in a renewed to a renewed creation. Likewise, when you place your trust in the Savior, you're brought safely through the scene of death and desolation 
onto resurrection, onto resurrection ground and a new life. As Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, at this point, Peter transitioned to another difficult and controversial topic, baptism. Now, as I go through this, I want you to think about your time when you were baptized, or if you haven't been baptized, why you should be. To begin with, it should be noted that the phrase, which corresponds to this, is often overlooked by those who insist wrongly that baptism is necessary for salvation. See, what Peter is doing here is drawing a connection between Noah and his family to the believers he's writing to. And this would include us as well. Just as the waters of the flood in Noah's day manifested God's judgment, Peter's now saying that the waters also correspond to the waters of baptism. However, just as the flood of waters saved no one, neither do the waters of baptism. You see, just as Noah and his family had to enter the ark to be saved, we're saved when we commit ourselves to, our, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, you are saved by grace through faith. Through faith in who? Through faith in Jesus Christ. When we enter into, salva- into the salvation of Christ, we become identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Charles Spurgeon said this, Noah was not saved by the, world, by the world's being gradually reformed and restored to its primi- primitive innocence, but a sentence of condemnation was pronounced and death, burial, and resurrection ensued. Noah must go into the ark and become dead to the world. The floods must descend from heaven and rise upward from their secret fountains beneath the earth. The ark must be submerged with many waters. Here was the burial. And then over time, Noah and his family must come out a totally new world, come out of a totally new world of resurrection life. So similarly, baptism occurs when one is plunged underwater and it's a vivid symbol of going down into the grave of death as Paul suggested in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 5. When one comes up out of the water, out of the waters of baptism, it signifies safety from the flood, from the floodwaters of God's judgment on sin and resurrected to life in or to live in the newness of life. Baptism thus is an outward sign of what has taken place spiritually. You, we have been baptized into Christ's death. 
So when we go under the water, we're acknowledging that we've been buried with him. And when we come up out of the water, we're showing that we've been risen with him and desire to walk in the newness of life. Therefore, when we read in verse 21, baptism which now saves us, it doesn't mean that our baptism in literal water saves us. It means that we've been saved from the stormy waters of death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter also added another comment, however, to ward off any misunderstanding. Baptism, he says, is not as the removal of dirt from the body. What he's implying here is that it isn't the water you're placed in that removes the stains of sin. See, 1 John 1, 7 says that only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Rather, he points out that it's a pledge of a good conscience towards God. This means confessing confidently that you absolutely believe that all your sins have been forgiven and that you've been reconciled with God. This is why I and many other pastors will often ask in one way or another someone that we're baptizing or someone that's being baptized uh, these three important questions. Have you publicly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Number two, do you believe that all your sins have been forgiven? And number three, do you intend to obey and serve God all the days of your life? By answering yes to these questions, they're affirming their personal pledge of a good conscience towards God. They're saying, yes, I understand what the death and resurrection of Christ means and what it means to me personally. And I believe it so much that I just, I, I, I want to show it through this outward sign of baptism. When baptism is understood in this way, we can appreciate why repent and be, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins was an evangelistic command in the early church. Now, some may ask, when or at what age should a person be baptized? My response would be framed around this verse. The moment an adult or a child has a strong and thorough understanding of what baptism signifies, of what it means. When it came to my boys around the age of 10, I started asking them, do you want to get baptized? And they're, you know, before that, I would ask them, they're like, yeah, I want to jump in the pool. Yeah, you know, you know, I, so I waited, you know, until they were about 10 years old and I asked them, do you know what it means? And early on, they would say, no, I, I'm not sure, though. They'd be like, uh, well, I, rather than explaining it to them, I would say, well, I want you to find out. I want you to find out what it means. And when you do, come back to me and we'll talk about it. So it took them a bit, but they did. They eventually came, and, and so I have no doubt they, they understand what baptism signifies. And eventually, I'm going to do, do the same thing with my daughter. But that's just me. That's just my, how, how I've decided to do it. You know, those of you who have kids, you know, that's something you have to pray about, how you want to lead your children into baptism. If you're an adult, 
once you understand these concepts, if you haven't been baptized, then let me know. And we'll, you know, we'll figure out a, a time and a place for us to meet up at, at one of the local pools and just do the baptism. You know, we'll have some people here and maybe we'll you know, pray with you and celebrate with you because it is a joyous occasion. So what I'm saying is that if you understand what this means and what it means to you personally, and you'd like to get baptized and you haven't been baptized yet, or if you now understand and want to come to that, that new place of baptism, then yeah, we'll meet up, we'll talk and we'll plan a day or a Sunday after church during the evening. Um, we'll go to the indoor pool here in the Northeast and just do a baptism. You know, again, very simple, you know, not complicated. This is one of the reasons I'm not a big advocate of, of infant baptism. A baby can't have or make a personal pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now, Peter completes his discussion in verse 22 by bringing us back to the center of this passage the victory of Christ over his enemies. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus Christ not only arose from the grave, not only arose from the dead, but he ascended to heaven where he'd come from, where he, where he was originally from. And he's there today, not as an invisible, intangible spirit being, but as a living man with flesh and I'm, I'm probably bones with, with some kind of flesh up there in a glorified body with flesh and yes, possibly bones. He's up there. He's up there. I mean, it's just the thought of that is just amazing. And in that body, he eternally, or he will eternally, you're going to see it, you're going to observe it, he eternally bears the wounds he received at Calvary. Eloquent and everlasting tokens of his love for us. And along with sitting at the right hand of God, what else does Peter tell us is going on? Jesus has angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. These three terms can be applied to both good and evil spiritual beings. But in any case, the point Peter is making here is that he reigns over all of them. They're all servants of the risen and glorified Christ. Therefore, now and forever, they can't rebel against him, nor can they contradict him? They must submit to Jesus because they were rendered ineffective, ineffective by Jesus when he died on the cross. What does this mean for you and me as believers? In our suffering, Jesus still reigns and rules by keeping us and protecting us from the power of the evil forces until the day we die. You see, when he died and rose again, he triumphed over all demonic forces and 
That means by implication, believers have also triumphed together with him. When Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that he, meaning God, also raised us up with him, speaking of Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavens, he was indicating this fact. Right now, Christians have a share in the spiritual authority which belongs to Christ, and through him, we will one day reign together with him. A bright young girl of 15 was suddenly cast upon a bed of suffering, completely paralyzed on one side and nearly blind. She heard the family doctor say to her parents as they stood in the bedside, she's seen her best days, poor child. No doctor, she exclaimed, my best, best days are yet to come when I shall see the king in his beauty. That is our hope. We shall not sink into annihilation. Christ rose from the dead to give us a pledge of his own rising. The resurrection is the great antidote of fear and death. Nothing else can take its place. Riches, genius, worldly pleasures or pursuits, none can bring us consolation in the dying hour. As I close, I want to share with you these four lessons Peter is sharing with us here in these five verses. First of all, Christians must expect opposition. As the coming of Christ draws near, we'll experience opposition, and yes, even persecution from godless people for just doing what is good, for just following Jesus, for just being known as Christians. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who, want, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A second lesson is that Christians must serve God by faith and not trust in results. Noah served God and kept only seven people from the flood. And because of his faithfulness, God honored him. Likewise, too many to many, Jesus appeared a total failure when he died on the cross. But now we know, now we believe that his death was actually a supreme victory. Third, we should be encouraged because we've, we've been, we're identified with Christ's victory. This is pictured in water baptism and is and actually, this is explained more thoroughly in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I would again encourage you to go back and read those verses. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When we're baptized, not only does it identify us with Christ, but it also signifies that we've broken with the old life and we've broken with the old life and will, by His help, live a new life. A fourth and final lesson in this passage teaches us that Jesus Christ is the only Savior 
and the lost world needs. They need to hear the gospel. When an unbeliever dies, there are no second chances afterwards. That's it. It's over. It says so in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So as believers and as a church, we need to understand. You all need to know the necessity of evangelism and missions. If you truly have the love of Christ in you, if you truly have the Holy Spirit inside you, you will understand and just have a deep desire, deep passion to want to share the good news of Jesus Christ, regardless if they're good people or bad people, whether, you know, they're that good person that always does the right thing every single time at your work or at your schools, or whether it's that person that annoys you, whether that, it's that person that is in jail or, you know, committed a crime, they all, you should have a, that deep desire to share Jesus with them. Because, honestly, the Bible tells me, the Word of God tells me that even that Jesus does not want that person. God does not want that person to go to hell. God loved that person so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die for them. Again, there are people out there who are dying who've never heard the good news of salvation. And this ought to motivate, motivate us to share the gospel with them. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. As his ambassadors, he wants to speak through us. He wants to use us to share his love to others, to those who are lost, to those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who are suffering, to those who are dying, to those who are hopeless. He wants to use us as his messengers, as his ambassadors. Do you have that desire? Do you have that passion? If you don't, then again, I would consider you just come to God whether it's on your knees, on your face, come to God and ask Him to fill you with that love, with that passion, and He will. There may be something blocking your heart. There may be something that's in the way, and God is just asking you to remove it. Get it out of the way, and I'm going to give you that passion. You'll have that love for others. You won't be looking at that person that annoys you at work or at school and say, ah, yeah, no, that person, I hope they end up you know, with all, the, with all the other sinners. No, again, that's, that shouldn't be your heart. Shouldn't, you shouldn't be. Again, I know that sometimes we all think it when we come across somebody like that, but, you know, I know that I get convicted when, I, when those thoughts come to mind. <coughs> we need just to have that heart. We need, it's, it's, it's important. It shows, again, that Christ is really living in us. If you're a believer, God wants to use you. Therefore, be ready at any time to give a defense. 
to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Whether it be in good times or in bad. To those who are good to, to us and those who are persecuting us. And even if we do suffer, may we always remember that it's only a prelude to glory. I want to spend a few minutes talking to those who haven't yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have heard the message or maybe haven't heard the message and are like, man, I, I need a savior. That's what I've been looking for my whole entire life. Well, let me tell you that he cares for you and loves you. He died for you. And all you have to do is just receive him. You don't have to do a bunch of works. You don't have to. It's, it's all by faith. It's just all by believing in him. Everything that comes afterwards, everything you, you desire to do, whether it's sharing the gospel or serving in the church, whatever it is, you know, it all just, it will come afterwards. It will all come just out of, out of an act of, of wanting to obey, wanting to serve Him. But for now, again, it's a matter of just accepting Him into your heart. In a minute, I'm going to pray, and if you're ready to receive Jesus Christ, if you're serious and, and want Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior, of your life, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that. But I also want to just also address those who are listening and watching also that if you've heard the gospel and at one time you rejected it or you rejected it before and now it all makes sense, it's never too late. You can do that just because you rejected it at one time doesn't mean that you have to continue to reject it. Maybe the Lord's tugging at your heart right now and telling you just come to me would encourage you just to listen. Listen to what he's, what he's telling you. And believe me, your life will completely change. It's going to be renewed. And you can just, again, you're going to see, see the world differently. He wants to do a radical work in your life. So if that's you, wherever you're at, close your eyes and bow your heads. And with all your heart, with all sincerity, pray this. Heavenly Father, forgive me. I've blown it. I'm a sinner. I've done you wrong. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I believe he is Lord. I confess it. So now I place my sins upon him, Lord. And as I do, just wash me clean, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Let me have your eyes, Lord. Give me your eyes so that I can see the world the way you see it. So that I may love the way you love. Thank you for sending your son.
Give me the strength to walk in obedience to you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, talk to somebody. I'm sure many of you know, again, that, that, that Christian that once annoyed you. Talk to them. They probably will be able to help you and lead you to a good church, a good Bible-believing church. You know, call us, let us know, and we'll help you in your next steps. But, again, going back to, the, to, to one of the topics here, consider baptism. It is important. I would definitely suggest it as a Christian. It's one of the ordinances of the church, along with communion. So if you're at that point and you're ready to and you understand, you get it, again, let us know and we'll, we'll go right away. And just like we're told in Acts with, with, with Philip, we'll just go and find somewhere to dunk you and baptize you. It doesn't have to be this beautiful, nice, clear river. And we can just go to the local pool. We can do it in bathtub if we wanted to. I don't know. Um, it's just, again, the symbol, what it symbolizes, what the water symbolizes. So, I hope, again, this message to everybody here encourages you. It's taught you a few things. It's opened your mind to maybe some of these questions about what did Christ mean when he descended or, um, uh, or about baptism. But if it doesn't, I, and if you want more information, the best thing I can do is just talk to us or I would, again, encourage you to just do an in-depth study and see how, what the Lord says to you, what He wants to tell you, how He wants to teach you. Let's close with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your wisdom. Thank You so much for imparting that, that wisdom to us. for showing us exactly what it is that you, we need to know. Again, these, some of these things may be over the heads of many people, but you have a purpose. You have an exact timing of when all this is clear, when this will become clear, Lord. You will speak to them clearly and show them exactly your word. Again, Lord, like I prayed in the beginning, I pray for those who are suffering, those who are going through a hard time right now, that they may see that whatever it is they're suffering with, whether it's persecution or whether it's a disease or an illness, Lord, that it's all for your, your glory, God. That in that suffering, in that pain, you're with them and that you've given them victory, Lord. And may that give them encouragement. May, they get, may that give them comfort. So that even when it hurts, that they'll be able to glorify you completely, Lord Jesus. We glorify you and honor you so much, Lord. Bless this next time of fellowship, Lord. May we encourage one another 
uplift one another. May we just honor you in this time. Bless everyone's weak. Keep them safe, Lord. And may we just be the light to this community. May we, may we be the light to those around us have that desire to share the gospel, to share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.